0: Good morning, church family. It's, all, it's so good to be back together uh, to jump back into the Minor Prophets this week. Now, if you've been around uh, for at least a year, um, then you know why I said back into the Minor Prophets. Because uh, last February, um, at all three campuses of Lindsay Lane, we went through the first four of those books. We went through uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. And now uh, we're going to kind of, over the next four weeks, we're going to tackle the next four minor prophets. If, uh, but let me back up a minute, okay? Um, if you're not familiar with all what in the world I'm talking about, these minor prophets thing, at the end of the Old Testament, which is that first section of your Bible before you get to the New Testament and the story of Jesus, uh, his birth, there are 12 small books that begin with Hosea and end with Malachi. Those twelve books are collections of messages from some of Israel's prophets from many, many years ago, um, and they are uh, there. There are some. They're called the minor prophets, not because of they lack importance or they lack popularity. Do you know why we call them the minor prophets? Because they're short. Not people, but the books themselves are short. That's literally it. And if you compare the length of the minor prophet books at the end of the Old Testament to like Isaiah and Jeremiah, who we call major prophets, you'll see it very clearly. Big difference in the size of the books. And as small as these collections may be, I'm telling you, they are potent, they are intense, they are good, and there is, there's goodness for us to see today um, in the next three weeks as we study through this. Uh, today we get the privilege of looking at the most unique, probably, of these, the book of Jonah. So let me read. uh, You're going to turn in there if you want. We're going to be there the whole time. Uh, We won't look at much of anything else. Um, But let me read Jonah 1, 1 and 2. Even if you're not there, go on and flip. Uh, The word of the Lord says this. um, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Let me voice a prayer, and then we'll talk about this some. Father God, we thank you. Uh, God, for uh, the story of Jonah, God, um, God, all the other stories we read in the Bible, God, the, these these real men and women who are experiencing life, and, and we get to see their mistakes, we get to see their blunders, and God, you use that to teach us um, to know who you are and to know how we can follow you better. And so today, God, open the hearts and minds of your people to grow today. In our understanding of you, and be with us in Jesus' name. I pray, Amen. Amen. Now, um, I grew up. I was born in 1987, and I know that does two things in the hearts of most of you. One of you, some of you, that makes you feel old because you were born before 1987. Some of you, you go, "Dude, you're old," because I was born after 1987. Either way. Um, One thing I know about growing up, I grew up most of my time in the 90s, okay? There were certain phrases that were developed just like all uh, generations, but I grew up in the 90s, and when we said things to our friends and siblings who were trying to make us do something we didn't want to do, there were three phrases that uh, my wife and I used when we were growing up. One my wife said was, who died and made you king? I didn't use that one much, Um, but I did use these two. You're not the boss of me. That was one I used quite often on my sister because it would tick her off so much. If you said it like with attitude too, she loved it. Um, and the other one was make me. You know that one? You take a step forward, lean in, make me. Um, I use that one a lot, mostly with my friends because it led to like a WrestleMania, pay-per-view wrestling match, body slams, belly to back suplexes, power bombs, all that. Um, but What I didn't do when I was growing up was use any of those phrases on anyone who had actual authority in my life, okay? Um, Because, again, I I grew up in the era where it didn't matter who the adult was in your life, they could discipline you. And so if it was at school, I did not speak to my school teachers that way um, because they could do something about it. In the 90s, leather belts and paddles were always within arm's reach. Um, And uh, I had Sunday school teachers that I didn't say that to growing up at church. Um, and I certainly didn't say it to my mom and dad, to Joe and Darlene Haney, because um, that was going to be bad news. Now, the reason I didn't say this to them is because they had actual authority in my life. And if I could sum up what the book of Jonah is, we're going to study the whole thing today. What I think it is about, this would be it. A childish, rebellious, smart-mouthed 90s kid looking at a person of authority in his life and saying, make me. Now, the problem is Jonah wasn't saying that to his parents, his Sunday school teacher, or even to the king during his day. He was saying it to God. So it doesn't go over well. But Jonah learned something about God that we're going to learn today. He learned that God has real power without end and that God will sometimes teach you a lesson even when you don't want to learn it. And I don't know if you found that to be true, but uh, Jonah, we're going to see from him today. So Jonah's different from the other minor prophets in that it's, uh, it's almost completely narrative, okay? So it's, it's going to be studied a little bit different. So when I'm studying, like next week is Micah, and it's all like prophecy, him speaking. But uh, Jonah is a lot of narrative. So what, I look, what I'm looking for when I study a narrative book is I'm studying it like I would a play, right? When you're watching a play, right, the curtains close, right? Scene one ends. The curtains open back up. The scenery has changed. Maybe we've been introduced to new characters, all of that. So when I'm reading a narrative book to understand what it's saying and where it's going, I want to see the scenes, see all the movements within the storyline, okay? And so I've, and I know a lot of times I'm like a three-point person, three three points in my message to you note-takers today. Type A people, you're going to love this. We got five today. But I promise you we're going to get out of here before one, okay? So it's going to be good. Here we go but this is this is number one, this is the kind of the first scene that we get introduced to, and we're seeing god's heavy hearted call god's heavy hearted call and so the standard book of prophecy in the Bible is the prophet telling a people group that they are in sin and they need to repent or there's judgment coming that's pretty much the the way most of the prophets work and This is what God has asked Jonah to do to go to Nineveh and preach there uh, which is which is Really cool because we don't often see kind of the calling of some of these prophets. Usually it just jumps right into their prophecy. But with Jonah, we're seeing it as God is calling him to go be faithful here. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Now, you might not be familiar with Nineveh. Um, it was the capital city of Assyria. And so if you've studied the Old Testament a lot, especially First Kings or Second Kings, First and Second Kings, Chronicles. If you study that, you know Assyria are a longtime enemy of Israel during this period of time. They're the ones that will soon sweep in in the storyline. They'll sweep in and and, and and then later the final blow will be dealt out by the Babylonians to finish the job. But um, but the Assyrians, they were more than enemies. Though they were nasty dudes. So I did a little bit of research. Art and carvings from this area in Israel's history, Assyria's history. Um, one of their large cities, it wasn't Nineveh, but it was one of the adjacent cities, uh, bronze gates out in front had images of limbs being ripped off of individuals and people being impaled alive on a pole from a seated position. I won't go into any more detail there. are um, other art of ears and tongues being ripped out, people's heads stacked on top of each other after they've been severed. Lot, so, okay, you got the picture? Can I stop? All right, pretty gross, nasty people, nasty, nasty stuff going on here. And as evil as this nation was, listen, as much as they had terrorized the nation of Israel, what we often forget that their first sin was against God. And like that's so pivotal to where we're going through the rest of this story that we've got to grasp that. Because we still struggle with this today when we're fed up with somebody because they've been treating us bad or they've been treating somebody else bad. We'll be good to remember in that story that as much as we detest their sins... God detests the sins of their enemy, of our enemy much more than we do. They're being jerks to us, but they are in direct rebellion of God. And that's what's going on in Nineveh. And that's why I believe that this call that God extends to Jonah was a heavy-hearted one. He's, Nineveh was a massive city. We're going to find out later in the story that the greater Nineveh area was about 120,000 people. 120,000 people that God created in His image, church created in his image, yet they're living their life in rebellion to him and instead living in the image of evil and violence. This breaks the heart of our God. And we get to see that. So God calls this prophet named Jonah to go and to preach to them, to let them know that he's unhappy and that they need to change. And, and Jonah would have been familiar with this process. So he knows what's being asked of him, yet what we find Scene 2, only in verse 3 though, Jonah's wholehearted disobedience. Jonah, verse 3 says, got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. You see, God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah, effectively, like a true 90s kid, says what? Make me. And instead, he heads in the opposite direction from Nineveh, a place called Tarshish. And it says twice in the text that he was doing this to flee from the Lord's presence. Now that, like, it's supposed to draw your heart and mind to go, what is he, five like you're supposed to be drawn there. You're supposed to think about I think about my own bratty children, right? Like when I tell them to do something and they go hide from me. Like that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to see this. And the question that it was on my that's on our mind here is we're reading through the text again, without trying to shut off any knowledge of the rest of the book of Jonah, what's going on here? Why didn't he go? Is he afraid of the Ninevites? Because maybe there's some evidence that we should be afraid of them. We don't get the why in the text here, but what we know is that he hated the Ninevites. It seems that Jonah would rather live a life disobedient to God than to see them repent and be saved. That's a deep-rooted hatred, church. However, our good God does not just let him run. Uh, The ship he is on experiences heavy storms while they're at sea and the sailors the ones in charge of the ship are freaking out and they're trying to figure out where why how do they can they're not going to live they've they've we've we've quit we've left our positions we've left our stations we're now just absolutely losing our minds but this jonah seems to know that it's his disobedience that's causing the storm and I love the way that he begins to tell the sailors about it. Verse 9, he says this. He answered them, look, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. And it's in this moment where you think, that's right, Jonah, and God can do something about it. But then it also there's this idea of, yeah, he's the one who made the sea and the dry land. And where would you try to hide from him? You know what I mean? Like, you, Jonah, you tried to run away from the God who created The sea and the dry land. It's much like my children. I talk about my kids a lot. Sorry, but when they were young, they would try to hide from me when they were in trouble or when I asked them to do something they didn't want to do. Where do they hide? They always go to the curtains, don't they? They always go to the curtains. But what they don't realize is that we intentionally left our curtains short of the floor so that I can see your feet. We only have four pillows on the couch. They're not big enough to hide a body under. That's why we don't put more pillows on our couch. So you can't hide from... Like, we're, we're this is our house. We decorated this place. We know where everything is. And we know when you're hiding from us. And yet Jonah here, it seems to be, even in the moment as he's talking to the sailors, has got to go, huh, I'm stupid. You know, like, this was a dumb idea. I tried to hide from God. But yet he doesn't repent. In fact... Instead of repenting and maybe God calming the storm, he says, throw me in the water instead. That'll calm the seas down. Now we can give some credit to Jonah and go, Jonah's trying to save everybody on a ship, man. Jonah's like, hey, I'll let me be the sacrifice. Throw me into the storm and this and you guys will be saved. Yet. Or we could also make the argument that Jonah now would not only rather live a life disobedient to God than to see Nineveh repent, maybe he would rather die than to see Nineveh repent. Whatever the reason, the sailors grab that dude and chunk him over. Okay? And exactly what happens, the storms calm, but they don't pick him back up because they're smart. They leave him in the water and he's left at sea, hopeless, no hope of survival. But, our good God's not quite through with Jonah yet. You remember what I said earlier? I said God sometimes wants to teach us a lesson even when we don't under, don't want to learn. And remember that Jonah essentially said, make me as he headed the other direction. Jonah 1.17. Y'all, I can't write this stuff. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's really in the Bible. That just happened. Okay? Check that out. God appoints a big fish to swallow Jonah. And what typically happens to things that are swallowed? They die. Dude lives for three days in there. Okay? He's a miraculous thing. He miraculously lives in the fish's stomach. Now, we got to talk about something for a second because you've got in your mind, thanks to Disney, you've got the wrong picture in your mind. You're thinking of Pinocchio. You remember the movie Pinocchio? I don't know if you do, but they wind up in a whale, a big whale. And they're like sitting on the back of his tongue. And they're like built a fire or something. And then the talking cricket, I think, is there at that point. I can't remember. I didn't go back and watch it. But they're just like chilling inside the whale. Listen, that's a movie. I'm making the argument today that this actually happened. Okay you you make another argument if you want, so Jonah's not sitting on the back of the fish's tongue, hanging out talking to crickets. What happened He's actually in the digestive tract of a fish, a fit, a big fish, mind you, okay, a big one, but he's in the digestive tract, and normally that's where things would suffocate and die on their way to the stomach. yet he doesn't God keeps him alive in there. Imagine what that would be like. I'll end there. And it's in this dire situation as Jonah is pressed against the walls of this digestive tract that he begins to see God's hand at work. And in that moment, he commits to be obedient to the Lord, because when you think that death is awaiting you and you have no other choice except to die, you'll commit a lot of things, won't you? Like, if I know I'm dying tomorrow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess a lot of stuff to the Lord. I'm going to tell Him, Lord, I'll, I'll do anything. Man, I, 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 I'm sorry for all that. Like, we're going to, when we think we're dying, we'll commit a lot of things. And Jonah begins to come clean with the Lord. <laughs> and in a beautiful, fitting way, Jonah 2.10, again, is really in the Bible. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So that's fun. So now Jonah, who is trapped in the digestive tract of the fish, says, Lord, I'll do it. And then the fish <laughs> spits him up. And you know Jonah's on the shore going, shoot, that ain't what I planned on. Like, I thought I was going to die. Now, now in, in this moment, he's having to wrestle with it. And, but as he's back on dry land, chapter 3 of Jonah kicks up. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. I can imagine there was a little bit more firmness in God's voice this second time. In verse 3, we see Jonah, instead of going the other direction, Jonah got up, which is what God told him to do, and he went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Now, it seems that the story is turning here as we're talking about this play, right that the main character who was becoming the villain is finally he's been he's had this turning point in his life, and now he's going to settle into his role as the protagonist he's going to be the good guy here, but what Jonah shows us is that even though he had told God, Make me, and now God has that Jonah was not committing to this task with passion and verse in chapter and point three here is one that as you read the text, you may disagree with me on this because the Bible doesn't like come out and directly show us what I. But I believe I believe the context is there because I think what we see is Jonah's half-hearted obedience. I believe he's half-hearted in his obedience here. You see, we learn from the text that I just read that Nineveh was a big city. The author tells us that it took three days to travel. In verse four. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. You see, so as Jonah has run from the Lord, he almost died, he was rescued by a giant fish and now has finally made the trek to Nineveh. He walks into the great city, proclaims a five-word message in Hebrew and walks out. Now, the Bible, again, isn't completely clear on this. But it seems to me that Jonah is not preaching and interacting here as we see the prophets before him do. This is not what a prophet would do. This seems like when I ask my children to apologize to each other. They get the words out, I'm sorry, but they don't really mean it. They're doing it, but then they just run away. And I want to prove it to you by this. Jonah doesn't mention any particular sins that are going on in Nineveh as Almost all other prophets do. He doesn't explain to them how they should respond. Like, how they can repent, as most prophets do. And did you notice whose name wasn't even mentioned in the five-word Hebrew message? God, the Lord, the big man upstairs. Like, he doesn't even say anything. He just says, you're going to be destroyed. Right? All prophets are going to at least mention God's name. And it seems that this guy just wants to check the box and move on. And, dude, I want to chalk that up as so childish and ridiculous. And what a terrible follower of God. And then I have, like, these things above my bathroom sink. They're called mirrors. And I look in the mirror and I realize, dude, how often, even in my obedience to God, am I not super excited about it? How many times do I just go through the motions? I'm probably the only one. I know. Just me. But what we see through the book of Jonah is that sometimes we're half hearted. People are half hearted in their obedience. But check this out. Even in Jonah's half hearted obedience, God's plans prove greater. Because just as God had stepped in to bring the storm, and then the fish, and then the the thing that happened on the seashore, he steps in again. Because after Jonah's five word sermon, Jonah 3 5 happens. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. We, we, the king, he finds out about this. The, the fast is declared. Ask everyone to call on God's name to repent from their wrongdoing, believing that God would relent from the simple threat presented by Jonah. It's in this that we see Act 4 begin, Scene 4, Nineveh's broken-hearted repentance. Nineveh's broken-hearted repentance because there's a real revival that breaks out in one of the nastiest towns in the whole world. So before you think someone or some city is too far gone for God, stop that mess because there is always room for God to move. Amen? Amen? It's interesting. The text tells us that even the cows in the evil city of Nineveh can repent. <laughs> it calls even the animals to repent and be dressed in sackcloth, which is it's funny. Um, I think it's humorous. Y'all will later as you read it, I promise. Uh, but yet, even as the cows are being dressed in sackcloth, this godly prophet here is still harboring junk in his heart. We see God's uh, Jonah 3.10 God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he didn't do it. And so the reader of the book of Jonah begins to see the curtain close on this story. They're like, what a beautiful ending. Jonah came in. He preached the message. wasn't really all in it, but the people repent. And God says, yes, thank you. I will relent now. The curtain closes in this moment. You go, what a what a beautiful story. It's a lot better than Pinocchio. This is good. The drama coming to an end. But the curtain opens back up. And we're expecting to see a smile on Jonah's face. We're expecting to see him worship the Lord that God would choose to save such an evil city. But as Jonah 4 begins, we see this. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. So this gets us all the way to scene five, Jonah's cold-hearted ending. Jonah's cold-hearted ending. Because my question that's on my heart is, how could Jonah be upset at this? Okay, I've been in ministry now vocationally, like doing this, like with, 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 with everything I have since 2011, that's not right. Two thousand nine, two thousand eight. Golly, dates are struggling today. Two thousand eight was when I began in ministry, and as a as a as a pastor, somebody who's in ministry, listen, I can t- I can go back right now to two thousand and nine or so when a young boy came to me, a young teenage boy came to me after the message was over, and stood before me, and I said, "Hey, man, what's up?" and he said. You said not to leave if we needed to trust in Jesus. And I was like, hey man, let's go. You know, I'm like, let's fight. so I went to my office. I began to share with him about the goodness. I remember him. I can see his face as I'm standing on the stage. I can remember the conversation. I can remember the prayer that he prayed as he called on the name of the Lord to save him. And I can remember that I couldn't sleep that night. I was so pumped. But you know what's never happened when I preached? A whole city repent. Never happened. <laughs> I can't imagine like going to bury me cuz I feel like that's going to kill me like just the like just the the overwhelmness that you feel in that moment to be used by God that a whole city an evil city would repent and turn to God yet here Jonah's mad Jonah finally reveals why he has not wanted to come to Nineveh all along And the most interesting thing is the way in which he does it. He uses what, uh, so it's the most recurring Old Testament passage that's reused by the the prophets. It comes from Exodus 34. The Lord, this is an interaction that Moses and the Lord had. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. And that's that's a quote that gets used by several prophets to worship the Lord and to praise His name. But to the best of my study, Jonah's the only one that uses it sarcastically. He's the only one that uses it in a negative way to speak about God. So in case you miss it, I'm going to read this as Jonah would pray this. Jonah 4, 2 and 3. He prayed to the Lord. Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. You sense the heaviness of that prayer? Jonah says, I knew these things were true about you, man. This is why I didn't want to come here. Because I knew you would show him mercy. I knew you wouldn't send fire. I knew you wouldn't do it. He's mad at God that, he would, that God would show them mercy. That's a deep-rooted hatred. That's a deep-rooted hatred, church. That's rising to the top for Jonah. And again, Jonah declares, "I would rather die than to see the Ninevites repent." And after he has his little hissy fit, pounds on stuff, whatever. God says, "I love it. I'll start using this with people when I see that they're mad. Is it right for you to be angry?" That's all God says. This is Jonah just—he just, doesn't, doesn't respond to. him. There's an answer, but instead he walks outside the city to the hill east of it, builds himself a little shelter, and just sits down and watches the city, no doubt convinced that that, that, that they're going to have to blow it. It's an evil city. They won't keep it together. God's going to have to destroy them. I envision him with a box of endless popcorn just waiting on pins and needles for a storm to blow in from God or another nation to just come flying down the hillside and take them over. But what happens every time we see Jonah in a place of disobedience so far? Who steps in? God. I bet we're going to see it again. Jonah 4, 6. Then the Lord appointed. That's a word we've seen several times. The Lord God appointed a plant. And it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Because it was hot out there. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. That should be language we're familiar with as well, going back to being greatly displeased. So God makes some sort of vine shoot up out of the ground, provide shade for Jonah, and it doesn't last long because the text tells us I won't read it, I'll just summarize it. God steps in again on two things. One, he appoints a worm to come and eat the plant and kill it. And then God appoints a scorching east wind such that Jonah gets absolutely terribly hot. And Jonah is absolutely furious again. He wishes again that God would just kill him. Not in desperation, not because he's so hot, but in frustration and anger. And God asked him a similar question to before. <laughs> God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? That's God's way of saying, "Let's talk about it. Let's let's have What's the deal?" Jonah replies, "Yes, it's right. I'm angry enough to die over the plant." And notice the first time when God asked about Nineveh, Jonah didn't answer. But now he asked about the plant, and Jonah actually defends his position, which is we're, we're building here. So Jonah's up on this hill. He's hoping for the destruction of Israel's enemy. He's enjoying the shade till this plant died, and now he's throwing a hissy fit. He's ticked because a plant died. Are you seeing the irony yet, church? And God's response to this is so good. The Lord says, you cared about the plant, which you didn't labor over, and you didn't grow. In fact, it appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left as well as all their animals? Do you see this? Yes, Jonah, you're ticked over a plant that you didn't, even, you didn't even do anything for. I made these people in my image. Let me be broken hearted for just a minute. Let me be willing to show them mercy. Jonah, you're all bent out of shape because a plant died. Man, you didn't plant it. You didn't tend it. It just popped up. Church, this is the God that we worship at his best. Like this right here, man. Not just a God who is merciful, but one who desires to teach us mercy. Not just one who does not who just gives mercy, but desires that we understand what mercy is and we learn to show it to others in need. The saddest part of the whole book of Jonah is that we don't see his response. God says, can, can, Am I wrong? It ends on a question. And... Because it's good literature, we've got to recognize probably, right? Jonah, we don't know if he repents and goes into the city and starts making disciples. We don't know. But often when we don't get an answer in literature, it's because the author wants us to wrestle with the question ourselves. Put yourself in Jonah's shoes. Are there not things in our own lives that we get so bent out of shape over? So bent out of shape over. When there's, the world is crashing around us, people are dying without knowledge of the gospel. Our n- friends and neighbors are walking through life without any understanding that God loves them and Jesus died on the cross for them. But gum worms have killed my grass in my front yard. You see this? I mean, we laugh to keep from crying because we know it's all of us, man. Like this is the story of Jonah. We ignore the important things in our life over the things we think are important. How do we treat our enemies? Do we desire evil for them? Are there people in this world? Let me ask this question. Are there people in this world that you wouldn't want to see come sit across this room from you on a Sunday morning? Even if it meant that they died and spent eternity in the hell... Are there people that you would not want to see come in this place? Like that—that's that's getting the root of our problem here. You see, Jonah didn't want God to love his enemies; he just wanted justice. He wanted blood, fire, and death. But God loved Jonah's enemies instead and showed them mercy. But remember what I said at the very beginning: these Ninevites were not first and foremost enemies of Jonah; they were not first and foremost enemies of Israel. Who were they enemies of? God. God, and yet God shows them love. Arguably, they were the biggest sinners on the earth at the time, (laughs) breaking more of the Ten Commandments type things, the commands, than anybody else. Yet God chooses to love them and show them mercy. Listen, in the same way, the Bible makes it clear that you and I are naturally enemies of God because we sin. Romans 5, though, says that while we were still sinners and while we were still enemies of God, that God sent Jesus to die for us, and that you and I can be forgiven of the sin that separates us from God to begin with. Today, you can choose to turn from your sin just as the Ninevites did 2,500 years ago plus. You can turn from your sin and believe on the name of Jesus Christ and be saved today. I want to be at the back during this last song to help you with that. I'd love to help you process through that just as I did that young boy, blonde-headed boy who came stood before me back so many years ago. But I want to speak to those who are already Christians for just a minute too. (laughs) Are there some people in your life you need to forgive? Do you have enemies in this world like Jonah does? People that you just don't even want to look at? My question just for you today to wrestle with, what would it look like for you to switch your hate to prayers for their repentance and salvation. What would that look like? So, as we sing this last song, I want to ask you to 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 use the time, whether singing or in prayer, to pray and consider that, and recognize this: if you're harboring ill will in this way, it's not just affecting your life. You remember when Jonah was being disobedient to God, and it was all because of anger. Who did it affect on the boat? everybody, everybody else. Can I just say this? As one of the sailors on the boat with you, if you call Lindsay Lane East home, as one of the sailors on the boat with you, please forgive. Have you ever thought about all Jonah had to do? Jonah didn't have to get thrown overboard. Jonah needed to fall on his knees and say, God, forgive me. I'll do what you want me to do. And the storms I believe would have stopped. So I'm, we don't, we don't, I'm not going to figuratively throw you out of here today if you choose not to, <laughs> to repent. We're going to do that. But just know that the people around you, your church family, your family, your friends, your whatever, whoever your crew is around you, that your harboring of ill will affects them. And that for the sake of this church, for the sake of your home, for the sake of your friendships, you need to repent of your ill will and you need to forgive today. I'm going to say a word of prayer. And I just want to, we just want to give you an opportunity to do whatever God's laid on your heart to do. You can stand and sing. You can pray where you are. Come to this altar and pray for yourself or other people. But I just want to pray. And we'll just follow the Spirit's leading through this last song. Father God, we thank you. God, that you are a gracious God. And God, if you've showed grace to the Ninevites, God, who are doing unspeakable, terrible things so many years ago, that God, there's no sin in this room that you won't forgive. God if there's somebody in this room now who's thinking God that they're like a Ninevite, that they've got sin you don't know what I've done you don't know where I've been man you don't know the things I've said and done that they would just see that you're big enough and God it's not only that to, to save Nineveh you did crazy unspeakable things to get Jonah there just so that they could hear the message and repent so God not only you offer mercy but you seek us out using everything in your power, even fish. So God, I pray that today that we would make much of who you are and God, that that we would all leave this place, God, with hearts that have been unburdened. We would give our burdens to you today and leave this place forgiving other people so that this ship can keep rocking on in the direction you've... Pointed us without the storms and the stuff that come. Kind of God, I love you, and I thank you for your grace and your mercy. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Guys, let stand. And say.